Father, I thank you for bringing us together this morning, this holiday weekend. Thank you for the good word and that we've already heard and that we've tasted. And we thank you for feeding us in those spiritual mysteries. And now, Lord, as we take time a little bit different than what I'm used to doing in this context, I pray that you will give clarity and some insight into um, this translation, Lord, that you have used so mightily in the history of the English-speaking world. And I pray that you will help all of us to come to a deeper sense of appreciation that you've given us the Bible and you've given it to us so that we could read it. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, um, this is completely out of my comfort zone today. And and I have to make a confession to you. I'm I'm working on a project now um, that I'm, I'm trying to do some some work on the theological significance of the Septuagint is super boring and completely inapplicable to anything in our lives. Um, but <laughs> I'm working on that right now. And, and, it, and it dawned on me as I was thinking through some of the issues pertaining to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it this morning because it's uh, interestingly on analogy to the King James Version. Now, that's at least the significance of the translation event itself. So I wanted to um, sort of think about the King James a little bit, and so I thought, you know, if I'm going to write this article, it might be good for me to read some stuff on the King James Version. So I, oh, I bought a few books online. I sent an email to Gerald Bray, Mr. Polyglot and Polymath, who knows more in his pinky than I know in my body. Um, so Ger- I said, Gerald, give me some book ideas. And he's like, well, num- number one, I, I, this is for your own um, uh, encouragement and maybe resource if you're interested in this. Um, the book that Gerald recommended, and I've now read it cover to cover, I thought it was outstanding, is by Gordon Campbell, um, Bible, the story of the King James Bible that came out with Oxford Press in 2011. So you know that the King James Version was first published in 1611. So 2011 marked the 400-year anniversary people got on the publishing bandwagon. Gordon Campbell's volume is actually very accessible and very good. Um, another one that I fiddled in as well is uh, out with Cambridge University Press entitled The King James Bible, A Short History from Tyndale to Today. And this is by David Norton. Norton, and this is by Campbell's own account as well, Norton may be the most significant living King James Bible scholar around today. Um, so the fact that he wrote a book that came after Campbell's, I think, is kind of interesting. But um, this, I, I commend this one to you as well. I will not appeal as much to this one today, but I thought I would um, let you know about it. So I'm working on this project, and I actually, for some reason, thought, you know, this is I'm, my semester at Beeson is over now, um, and 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 I go, I, I live in an academic calendar. I don't know if any of you live that way, and unfortunately, my mental capacities work and an academic calendar as well. And I was convinced that I was teaching this class next Sunday. I just had it in my mind. And then I, I'm glad, I, Wednesday, I looked at my calendar, and I'm like, oh, you're, you're teaching on um, on Sunday. So uh, it was good for me to get kick things in gear um, and read these books that I was planning to leisurely read next week. Um, but I'm reading them, read them this week. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, and so I, I, I'm, we're, we're, we're in it. Now, I, I grew up, um, as some of you know, in a, in a King James Version only world. Now, who are the rest of you out there who grew up in the King James Bible only world? Ah, more of you than I thought, actually. Um, now, that was the sort of 
fundamentalist upbringing that I had, and Cameron was joking with me on the way in this morning, I even had the joke written down. You know, the old line, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, the King James Bible, it should be good enough for us, right? <laughs> um, and I, I grew up in that, in that world uh, where the King James Bible was deemed uh, to be the Bible. Um, matter of fact, by the time you get into the, to the early 18th century, there was, there was folklore around, even in England uh, and into the English-speaking world, that the King James Version itself was inspired. Now, that, that sounds, uh, the, the translation itself, was, then that sounds like an interesting claim to make because that's exactly what many claimed about the Septuagint as well, that it was inspired. That was Augustine, St. Augustine's claim in the 5th century that the king that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was inspired, and therefore that was to be privileged over the Hebrew text. And then he sort of waffled and changed his mind a little bit. But so this is a this whole notion about translations, how translations function authoritatively, is a very um, important theological matter because most of us are reading our Bibles in translation. Most of us are. Um, and we're reading our Bibles, whether it's King... How many of you still prefer the King James Version? I'm, I'm curious. Okay, a few of you. Um, how many of you are NIV people? In my world, we call that the new and accurate version. Um, <laughs> I, I don't really believe that. I like the NIV. Um, NIV people? Um, how about the new... Uh, I call it the Beeson Standard Version. It's our Bible of, of choice now. The English Standard Version. Any of you ESV people? Lots of ESV people. Okay. Um, how about RSV? That's, I'll put my hand in there with RSV. I like the RSV. Um, and any, any of you liberals out there? NRSV? Any liberals? Just joking. That's joking. <laughs> NRSV is fine too. Okay. So, um, the King James Version um, has given us a language and a world that really um, is ingredient to how we understand much of our Bible. Think about these, th- these phrases. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Born right out of the King James Version. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Even when we say it here in 1979, Book of Common Prayer, John 3.16, I twinge a little. That's a great translation. We say, to the end that all that believe. Have you heard that in our liturgy? But I, I just, I know the King James, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth Him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. How about Handel? Surely He has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. So my early reaction against the King James Version because of the King James only world that I knew was probably juvenile. Um, David Norton, in this book that I pointed to up here, perhaps the greatest living scholar of the King James Version, said, the King James Bible is the most important book in English language and culture, period. The most important book. So, let's talk about this a little bit. I'd like to give you a little bit of background on the King James Bible. Uh, then talk a little bit about the whole translation process. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm really nervous because I think this has the potential to be extremely boring. Um, but I, I, I find this stuff fascinating, so maybe my enthusiasm for the subject matter will carry us along. Um, but uh, a, a, a little history here, a little history. Um, you cannot begin any, any lecture, any thought on English translations of the Bible without beginning with John Wycliffe. 
Um, Wycliffe, and anybody want to take a stab at when Wycliffe was around? John Wycliffe? 14th century, all right? That, that's a long time ago. So we're talking about in the 1300s, 200 something years before Luther and the tacking up of the 95 Thesis. So when you begin to think about this on a timeline, you know, Wycliffe is, a, is actually a fascinating figure. He was referred to in time as the morning star of the Reformation. Why was he the morning star of the Reformation? Because he was, in a prologue sense, a figure that began to speak in Reformation theological language very early on. What, what was that Reformation theological language? Well, invectives against the Pope, which we're going to have to talk about that a little bit. Invectives against the Pope and clerical abuse. Um, his prioritizing of Scripture and his desire that the common man and woman be able to read the Scriptures. So Wycliffe um, is uh, one of the first instigators for the translation of the Bible, which at that time was the Vulgate, the Latin translation, the translation of the Bible into, into English. Now there's a little bit of folklore here. The folklore is that Wycliffe himself was the translator. That's probably not true. Wycliffe probably wasn't involved in the translation himself, or he was maybe in a tangential, side-marginal way. But he encouraged translators to take up the task of, of translating. And the Bible came out in, in English. Listen to this, I've quote this here from Campbell. A chronicler from the 14th century named Henry Knighton. This is what Knighton said about Wycliffe's English translation. Wycliffe, he said, translated from Latin into the language not of angels. Latin is the language of angels. Not for people who have to take it, by the way. The language not of angels, but of angles. Englishmen. It's kind of ha-ha fun. So that he made the Bible common and open to the laity and to women who were able to read, which used to be reserved for literate and intelligent clergy. Uh, Knighton was not happy about the prospect. So what he said was, now you have laity and, God forbid, even women right, who are able to read now have the ability to read the Bible uh, for themselves. So Wycliffe was a significant progenitor to any English Bible uh, translation. And, and by the way, just if you're reading in the literature, those who are followers of Wycliffe and his theological instincts are called the Lollards. So if you see Lollard or Lollardite, that's uh, John Wycliffe and his, his progeny. The next figure, who is without doubt the seminal and most significant figure in the history of English Bible translation is William Tyndale. So now we're jumping about a hundred something years here, 1495 to 1536. Tyndale is known as the father of the English Bible. This is what he proclaimed famously. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou, O Pope, dost know. And that was his goal. Tyndale and many, and frankly, many of those all of those who had reformational instincts during this period of time in the history of the church in Europe, in larger continental and Anglo-Europe, 
all of them recognized that the scriptures had had gone into a subservient place and that the tradition of the church had silenced the lionizing voice of the Bible. And so Tyndale comes in and he says, my goal, my, my dream is that the Bible be translated into English so that even plowboys who plow the field will have the ability to know the Bible even better than those who don't take the Bible as seriously. So Tyndale was heavily influenced by Luther's theology. He sought refuge in the German city of Worms. Uh, in 1526, he published the New Testament. It was a small, pocket-sized book. And by October of 1526, that year, um, that book was being distributed in London. And this is how it was described by the then Bishop of London. That pestiferous and most pernicious poison dispersed throughout all our diocese of London in great numbers. You could tell that there was a real power struggle going on. Get the Bible into the hands of the people and you've got real trouble on your hands. I mean, one could argue, actually, that the desire to keep the Bible out of the hands of the lady was much as a political power move as it was a theological move. Probably more so. What was Tyndale doing? Tyndale's language, his translation, aimed for clarity. For clarity, even above an elevated style, which is hard to believe given all the these and thous of the King James Version. He was after clarity. And it heavily influenced the subsequent King James Bible. After he translated the New Testament, I have to appreciate this about Tyndale, he then went on to study Hebrew. And he began a translation of the Old Testament that was never completed. He got through the Pentateuch, and then he got Jonah done. And then that was it. Many phrases from Tyndale are in the King James Bible, even in his Hebrew translation. How about this one? Let there be light, and there was light. That cadence, that rhythm, iambic pentameter is the technical term, influenced heavily the subsequent King James Bible that came after Tyndale. Tyndale was also the first person to introduce into the English-speaking language the name Jehovah. He did so in his translation of Exodus 6.3. Jehovah, uh, the technical name for um, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. If I had a marker, I'd write up there, but we'll just do it here. Um, How do we get that name? You ever wonder that? Jehovah? Jehovah's based on four Hebrew letters. Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, right? Um, Yahweh. And so it's based on four letters. And by the time that you get into the intertestamental period in between, say, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the name was so heavily revered, it was uh, uh, against Jewish tradition to speak that name out loud, that one had forgotten how to even pronounce the name. Matter of fact, those of you who watch closely Mel Gibson's Passion, you may remember that in Aramaic, some of the Jewish leaders would just say Hashem, the name. That's all they would say, just the name, as an appellation for the the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, Yahweh. So where did we get Jehovah from? The tradition within Jewish reading practice, and I encourage my students at Beeson to do this, so I tell them if they break the rule, lightning will not strike them. Um, But the traditional practice is wherever those four letters show up in the Hebrew Bible, instead of reading out loud Yahweh, 
or the, t- the technical name of God, they replace that name with Adonai, another Hebrew term, which it means Lord. So if you think about it in the King James Version or any English Bible, the technical name Yahweh you'll see as capital L, lower capital O, capital R, capital D. Whereas Adonai is capital L, little O, little R, little D. So that's one of the ways you can track it even in your English Bible. So what Tyndale did, and this was a tradition that goes back some way, was he took the vowels from Adonai, Adonai, A-O-I, and he took those vowels and he put them on the Hebrew letters, Yahovah. Right? So how you got the name Jehovah is from the four vowels that are on Adonai that are then tacked onto the four letters of the Tetragrammaton, the technical name. So that's how uh, the name Jehovah came into its English language. Now, in scholarly circles today, to say Jehovah, I mean, people kind of get a smirk on their face. It's not the technical term. Now people say Yahweh, or they just write the four letters. But I'll just go and tell you, to my mind, Jehovah is as good as, as any of the other options. Why not? We don't know how it's pronounced. We don't know how that word is said. Why not do Jehovah? I don't, in other words, I don't think Yahweh or some of the other uh, options on offer are any better or any closer to the original than, than Jehovah. So say Jehovah all you want as far as I'm concerned. Okay. In 1529, Sir Thomas More condemned Tyndale as a Lutheran, which he was. More complained. Sir Thomas More complained of his translation in his denunciation. He did not like uh, Tyndale's translation. So Tyndale took to a revision in 1534. And it is this revised version that has had the greatest impact on future translations. In fact, it is estimated that 83% of the New Testament in the King James Bible is Tyndale's translation in full and intact. 83%. He died in 1536 as a heretic condemned in Belgium. And according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, the last words off of Tyndale's lips were, Lord, please open the King of England's eyes. So that was Tyndale. Significant figure. The next significant figure is Miles Coverdale. Coverdale was an Augustinian friar who eventually became Bishop of Exeter. In 1535, while living in exile in Antwerp, Belgium, Coverdale published the first entire English Bible. Now, that's important. So the first entire English Bible was published in 1535 by Miles Coverdale. The New Testament in that, tra- in that English edition was almost entirely Tyndale's in revised form. And the Old Testament had to be culled from different sources. Um, Coverdale used Luther's translation of the Old Testament, the Latin Vulgate, a French Protestant translation that was around. The most enduring aspect of Coverdale's translation was the Psalter. It became the Psalter of the Book of Common Prayer for longer than it has not been, even up into the modern time. So that was Coverdale. Then in 1537, a publisher named John Rogers, who was eventually burned at the stake, Lots of these poor folks were burned at the stake. You remember that scene at the beginning of Elizabeth? Have you seen that movie, Elizabeth, where you have um, uh, Latimer and Ridley being burned at the stake? Have you seen that scene? Oh, it's just awful. I mean, you know the story on this, right? Latimer and Ridley burned at the stake. And I can't remember. I think it was Latimer who said to Ridley, play the man today 
because we will light a fire that will never burn out in England. That's some powerful stuff there from a man who's about to get burned, right? Well, the, apparently how the story goes is, it, it, whichever one, Latimer Ridley, uh, went real fast, right? The, the sticks were set in a certain way and the wind was coming and the smoke kind of came up and he, he just died very quickly from smoke inhalation. Whereas um, Ridley sort of took about 30 minutes, right? It was awful. So it's like the guy who was real bold got the, you know, got the, 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 well, the guy who wasn't as bold, I guess, got the short end of the stick. That was, by the way, the, the martyrdom that Cranmer saw from the prison window in Oxford. They forced him to watch. And according to Derriman McCulloch's account in his classic biography on Cranmer, Cranmer was so overwrought with what he saw that he physically threw himself on the ground. Couldn't take him. So this is a hard time to be a Protestant, right? That was a little pick-me-up for you this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in 1537, John Rogers uh, produced the first authorized English Bible. The Pentateuch and the New Testament were all Tyndale's. He also used Tyndale's unpublished translation of Joshua to Chronicles. So, Tyndale had never published this, but he got a hold of Tyndale's Joshua to Chronicles translation. The rest of the Old Testament and the Apocrypha were all Coverdale's translations from other uh, translations. It's called the Matthew Bible because of the pseudonym that Rogers used. His pseudonym was Thomas Matthew. That's been a puzzle. People are not sure why he used that synonym. The Matthew Bible was endorsed by Thomas Cranmer, but it was too small for church use. So it was a kind of a smaller pocket edition. And you know that a church Bible, they wanted it to be bigger. So this led to the commissioning of, as you might guess, the Great Bible. <laughs> so Coverdale, Miles Coverdale, took the task on, of getting a larger Bible. And instead of revising his own Bible, I think this is a real act of humility here, instead of revising his own translation, he undertook a version of the Matthew Bible. And in 1539, they published the Great Bible because of its size. And it was also remembered for its editorial scrupulousness. This was a fine edition, the Great Bible that came out. Henry VIII, the picture when you open up of the cover page, Henry VIII is there in a drawing, handing out Bibles to clergy and laity alike in the front art entry work. Another Bible. Have you checked out yet? I'm nervous about this getting a little boring. Hang, hang with me. The Geneva Bible. Many exiles during the reign of Queen Mary resided in Europe. So, you know, Mary comes to the throne. It's a bloody reign. Brings Roman Catholicism back as the national religion. Those who were Protestant by confession, many of them died at the stake, thus her bloody reign. Many of them exiled themselves to Europe, uh, going even into places like Geneva, where Calvin was. William Whittingham who later became the dean of the cathedral at Durham, he resided in Calvin's Geneva. He was the great force behind the Geneva Bible. The Old Testament is based on the Great Bible, but the New Testament and the Psalms were all the work of Whittingham himself. Now, the Geneva Bible was intended for private study. One might argue that the Geneva Bible was the first study Bible ever. Right? There were marginal notes and tables. And there were charts. And some of these marginal notes were deemed anti-monarchical against the king and against bishops. So the Geneva Bible was enormously popular. More than 70 editions between 1516 and 1640. 
But in despite its anti-bishop and possible anti-monarchic leanings, people like Lancelot Andrews, more of him in a second, and even Richard Hooker read it and appreciated it. It was also the first English Bible to be printed in Scotland. Knox and Whittingham were, were friends. So the Geneva Bible was vastly popular, but you can imagine if you were a bishop in England, now that, the, that Queen Elizabeth is back on the throne, you can imagine that being a bishop, um, you would not be all that excited about a Bible that's marginal note seemed to be anti-episcopate, right? So this led in 1568 to a revised version of the Great Bible that was referred to as the Bishop's Bible. It was the Bishop's Bible because large numbers of bishops on the revision committee were present, and that led to its appellation, the Bishop's Bible. The Bishop's Bible is known more for its dignity and its attempt at majesty, really, than for its its clarity. So what you see here, and I think this is for all of that yak about all these Bibles, I think what you see here is the significance of how many English translations were up and running at this point. I mean, you had Coverdale's, you had Tyndale, you had Matthew's Bible, you had the Great Bible, you had the Geneva Bible, you had um, the Bishop's Bible, and they were out. So now when King James I of England, who was King James VI of Scotland, ascends to the throne, something significant happens. Because all of these Protestants had gone down into Europe during the reign of Mary, one knock-on effect of that was many of these Protestants took on the lower church instincts of certain regions in the continent like Geneva with Calvin. And they came back with their lower church view on things, and they were known as the Puritans. So you had the Puritans who came back into England, and you had those who were more supportive of the uh, traditional historic episcopate, and it created a significant amount of tension. When King James the Sixth, who became King James the First, came from Scotland to take the throne in England, all the Puritans thought for sure now the king will lean in a Puritan direction. Why? Because Scotland was a Puritan land. But King James didn't do that. Now, I listened to some lectures by J.I. Packer on the history of Anglicanism, really great lectures, and I can remember Packer saying in the car somewhere between the South Side and Sanford as I was driving to work, something like, I think King James didn't retain his Puritan side because he really liked being king, or something like that, right? And I was, when you become king, you know, things, your, your, your opinions can change because being king is kind of, kind of nice. So he was king. And so to kind of bring some peace between these warring factions, and James was a lover of theological debate, he held and hosted a conference at Hampton Court. And while he was at Hampton Court Palace, he brought together bishops and moderate Puritans. Now, the leader of the bishops was Richard Bancroft, the Bishop of London, and the leader of the Puritans was John Reynolds, who was the president of Corpus Christi College in Oxford. And they came together, and there's a lot about this conference that we don't know, but one thing that did come out of this conference is Reynolds complained about all the English translations that were around and argued for the commissioning of a new translation. And though there was rigorous debate, and though Bancroft and the other bishops were very happy with the bishop's Bible, um, King James uh, did not let them win the argument, and he gave the thumbs up to a new translation. 
And that's one of the most significant features that came out of that conference at Hampton Court. Some of you may know um, Adventer Jason Wallace, who teaches um, at the uh, at Sanford University as well. He has a group of fellows from Sanford and England right now, and he told me top of our list on our little English Reformation tour is to go to Hampton Court, right, to see where this famous um, debate took place between the Puritans, the nonconformists, and the conformists. But out of that came this need for for a new translation. Well, I see that my time is running, uh, he, uh, so I'll give it to you quickly. Out of this came 15 rules that Bishop Bancroft himself devised. And this may be of interest to you. The King James Bible was not deemed out of the gate a new translation. Matter of fact, in the preface to the King James Bible, um, it is said this is not a new translation. But this is a revision of a great Bible. That is the Bishop's Bible. But it's a revision toward a more pure form. And how did they do that? How did they make a revision according to a purer form or a better form? How did they better the Bishop's Bible? By a fastidious and tight, detailed reading of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek originals of the, of the Bible. In this way, the King James Bible was on the forefront of scholarship at that particular time in Europe. They used Erasmus's, I think, third edition of the Greek New Testament, which was the cutting edge of, of, um, of Greek New Testament scholarship. They used the newer grammars that were coming out from Europe, um, Hebrew grammars by Reuschlan and others, and newer dictionaries, and the best forms of the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text that they had to work with, and that's where they worked from to do their, their, their revising work, their editing work. So they had big pages of, and you can see some of these at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, big pages of the Bishop's Bible that they would have laid out with all these marginal notes that came from their committees. And this is how it worked. This is how the translation worked in the sense of, of, its, uh, of its structure and, and method. They had six teams of translators. Um, these teams were spread out between Westminster which was at that time outside of London, but we think of it now right in London, Westminster in London, Oxford and Cambridge. And there were two teams in each place. The first Westminster team, for example, was led by Lancelot Andrews, without doubt the most learned linguist and philologist of that time period, a very learned and deeply pious man. I have at my house um, a, a book that was published by Neshota House Press of Lancelot Andrews' private prayers for his devotional life. I mean, wrote out prayers to lead him into, personal prayers, to lead him into morning prayer. The rich. Um, Lancelot Andrews was a high churchman, as you might imagine, um, but a very, very learned man. And their job was to work on the addition of Genesis all the way to Joshua. Right? Genesis uh, to Joshua. And then there was another group that did Isaiah to Malachi. And there was another group that did the New Testament epistles. And there was another group that did the Pauline epistles. So that they spread the work out evenly. Um, they also had a group that was committed to doing the, the Apocrypha. Now that, this might come of surprise to you. Especially given the reformational instincts that were behind many of these translators and, and, and those who supported it. The Apocrypha was included in all editions of the King James Bible until the 19th century. 
Um, so that's actually quite astounding. And, and by edict of the king, and by most who were in uh, various bishops' roles. Now, of course, the Puritans, those who affirmed the Westminster Confession of Faith, those who were more Reformed and Presbyterian in their leanings, were no fan of the Apocrypha. Um, but if you can see, for example, in Article 6 of the 39 articles that we, um, that we hold dear here at Advent, Article 6 says that it is only the Old Testament and the New Testament that we know of that can be used for anything as it pertains to life and doctrine. But the other books, referred to as deuterocanonical or apocryphal, may be read for instruction and edification. Um, so that, that even in our own articles, the Apocrypha has its role. It's not a canonical role, but it's a instructive and, edifi- and, and, and plays a role for, for edification. So once they did all of their work, intense work of reading the Scriptures together, reading the original language together, making emendations, then the King James Bible went through nine months of daily revisions from a revision team uh, composed of 12 members. And then in 1611, the edition eventually came out. By 1660, and you think about all of the warring factions, conformists, nonconformists, congregationalists, eventually in time when you come to America, um, the Wesleyans and the Methodists and the Quakers. And, I mean, so you think about the enormous amount of diversity in the Protestant world, English-speaking world. By the 1660s, the King James Bible was the preferred Bible by all English-speaking Protestant denominations. It was the Bible for, for Protestants. It's an astounding thing. And when one looks at the, the, the way in which the King James Bible came together with these teams of committees, no translation of the Bible like that had occurred in the history of the Western world since the Septuagint back in the 2nd century B.C. And why can I make a claim like that? Because the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, took place by a committee as well. team of, so, there's a lot of legend here, but a team of 70 came together and worked together independently and then they brought their work together. It was a big collaborative effort to bring the Hebrew into a Greek translation. But all of the other translations that we know, for example, the Vulgate, the Latin translation, that was the work of Jerome. Jerome almost single-handedly did the Vulgate. When you think about Tyndale, that was almost him single-handedly doing his work. Whereas the King James Bible was the work of a large array, a a big committee of the most learned men. Unfortunately, there were no women involved at that time, but the most learned men in that period of of English history. Can I read you this quote here? Oh, I see our time is flying. This is how Campbell describes this group. The learning embodied in the men of these six companies is daunting, I agree. It is sometimes assumed that people in the 21st century know more than the benighted people of the 17th century. But in many ways, the opposite is true. The population from which scholars can be drawn is much larger today than that of the 17th century, but it would be difficult now to bring together a group of more than 50 scholars with the range of languages and knowledge of other disciplines that characterize the KJV translators. We live in a world with more knowledge, but it is populated by people with less knowledge. To give but one example, the preface to the King James Version affirms 
that the Syrian translation, the Syriac translation of the New Testament is in most men's, most learned men's libraries and the Psalter in Arabic is in many learned men's libraries. As one who struggles with both Syriac and Arabic, that's the author here, I can attest how difficult they are for modern Anglophone readers. I am also confident that books in these languages are no longer in most learned men's libraries. Right. So it's a significant thing. Oh, there's so much more to, to say. Funny stuff. Um, the editions that come out in, I think it was 1631, they had an edition that was referred to uh, as the Wicked Bible. Because in the uh, translation of the Ten Commandments, the, the commandment on adultery said, Thou shalt commit adultery. They forgot the knot. <laughs> so they call that the, the, the wicked Bible. Um, other funny things like that in the history of its transmission. Uh, but needless to say, by the time you get to the 18th century, early 18th century, Jonathan Swift comes onto the scene and laments the fact that English as a spoken language was so variable in its movements and so... Um, malleable culturally that he thought we need to solidify and stratify the English language so that we can have something for uh, in perpetuity. And he argues in this tractate that Jonathan Swift writes that we need to do so on the basis of the King James Version and the Book of Common Prayer. Now, of course, that kind of thing, that kind of utopian vision of language will never work, Right. But you can understand the significance of the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer for maintaining English in a world where, the, where languages, as you know, change all the time. Language is a moving target. So the significance of the King James Bible in the English-speaking world is really hard, hard to over, overestimate. I wanted to end today by talking to you about T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis. But both Eliot and Lewis, in their different ways, really poo-pooed the idea of the Bible as literature. Lewis, in a, in a public address, said, I know there are people who read the King James Bible as literature. I just have not met them yet. Right. And his point was, the reason why the King James Bible had the profound impact that it had on English-speaking Protestant life, and not just Protestant life, English-speaking Christian life, the reason why it had such a profound impact is that people genuinely believed and believed rightly that herein containeth the word of God. They read it because they knew that these words were the words of God themselves. Which is a significant thing to say. Because if you go into the Barnes and Noble aisle, and I know this raises lots of questions and I don't even have time for you to ask them, which I kind of planned it that way. <laughs> but if you go into a Barnes and Noble aisle and you pick up an English translation of the Quran, it's going to say, an interpretation of the Quran according to English. But when you hold up your King James Version or your ESV or your RSV, what do you see on the front? The Holy Bible, right? It is a part and parcel of Christian faith throughout its whole history, including the New Testament period. One can see it in the New Testament's use of the Septuagint, right? That we understand that the Bible is translatable. And in its translatable form can render to us the very inspired words of God themselves. The significance of the Bible and the fact that it can be translated into various languages is an enormous achievement of God's Spirit to, to spread and promulgate His gospel around the world. There's a book that came out recently. I'm working on it, trying to write something up on it, called When God Spoke Greek. 
out with Oxford Press. It's a fascinating book on, on the Septuagint and the impact of the Septuagint on the New Testament and the early church. I would want to say we should not be all that surprised that God speaks Greek because God speaks Hebrew and Aramaic and Swahili and some strange tribal language in the hills of Peru. And lo and behold, by God's grace, we recognize that he, he speaks English too. So, Father, we're thankful for your word, thankful for the history of the King James Bible, the impact that it has had on our world. And uh, I pray, Lord, that you'll help all of us to follow in that reformational stream, to be lovers of your word and readers of it. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, 1769, that was the final stabilization of the King James Version that most of us read today, right? None of us are reading the 1611. You can kind of hunt it down. The one that you read today was finally stabilized 1769. Okay.